There's no denying it, holiday shopping season has arrived. Which brings us to David Yurman, America's foremost luxury jewelry brand. Its new campaign, Create Joy, Give David Yurman, celebrates life's small wonders and the magic of the holiday season. To create it, David Yurman partnered with the Savannah College of Art and Design's SCAD Pro Studio program to create the brand's first extended reality project. Together, they merged the real and virtual worlds to create an immersive environment that pays homage to David Yurman's home and perennial inspiration, New York City. Experience the holiday magic at davidyurman.com. Happy Saturday. It's December 2nd, 2023, and you are listening to Morning Meeting. I'm Ashley Baker in London. And I'm Michael Haney in New York City. And I'm getting through this introduction very quickly because there's only one thing we have to talk about, Michael, and tell me what it is. Oh boy, I don't know. Your holiday gift list? There's only one thing I want to talk to you about right now, and it is two people who died 25 years ago. Come on, that has to give it away. Would that be Dodie and Princess Diana? Ding, ding, ding. Okay, I know you've seen the first four episodes at this point. I've only seen the first two. I'm parceling them out very slowly, but I think I know what happened, so I'm happy happy to discuss. Okay. What do you think? Do you like it? You think it's too campy? No, I've been all in. I was out to dinner the other night with people like, oh, I stopped watching the last two seasons because I don't care about Princess Diana. I'm like, how can you not care about Princess Diana? How can you not care about any of this story? I think Elizabeth Debicki is unbelievable in this performance. I think what Peter Morgan's writing and how he's structuring it and the ideas he's playing with, it's terrific. I'm all in. How about you? hundred percent. I mean, I had a similar world to you. Like I thought I had read everything there was to read about Diana. I've read all the Tina Brown books. Like, what more can we really say about this? No, it turns out she's more fascinating than ever, at least in this telling of it. I mean, this idea that she was a pawn in the game of doting her father is fascinating to me. The way that she is with her boys is super interesting. Like, it's like we feel like we know these characters so well because they've been in the news for the last 30 years. But it turns out, no, there's still a lot more to discover. I thought the staging is great. I love the costumes. Like, I'm ready to cut my hair into a short and shaggy bob. Sorry, George Northwood, you're about to get a call. The whole thing is just beautifully done. And it really does take you back to that moment in the 90s that we lived through, right? And remember. And I think, Morgan, all these things have to come with this public service reminder to people, but it's a dramatic telling. It's not a documentary. And just like Shakespeare took real life people in history and used them to tell a story. I mean, there is some license here, but, and as Morgan always will say, these conversations were never public. He's imagining what could have happened behind closed doors. So yes, you see her on the boat, but you don't know what they're talking about. You don't know what Dodie and his father are talking about. So I think that to me is watching the creative skill that he brings to this and makes us think about the private lives of these very public people. Yeah. And I'm going to miss the crown. I mean, this is the last season and it has been such a pleasure for so many years now, especially to watch it this time of year when it's cold and dark outside. Like, I don't know how I'm going to get through another UK winter without it. So Peter Morgan, I really hope you're back to work on a new project because we need you in this world. We need you producing shows. Please do it. I just want to say, Reed Hastings, Netflix, if you're listening, you might want to give Peter Morgan another truckload of money to consider taking us up through the Harry and Meghan years. I agree a thousand percent. Also, I heard apparently Kate Middleton is about to make an appearance in an upcoming episode. So when do the new ones drop? They drop, I think, next week, I believe. All I have to say is this. I get what you're doing, Reed and Team Netflix, but this is torture and it's not fair and I need these episodes now. Like, don't give me four and then make me wait two weeks. It's cruel and unusual punishment. All right, well. Okay, sorry. So now that we've dealt with the most pressing issue of the day, Michael, we do have an incredible issue of airmail to discuss. Much more serious matters than fictionalized versions of events that happened 25 years ago. 
Chicago. Where shall we begin? Well, we've got Dan Raviv, who's going to join us with a jaw-dropping report from Israel revealing how and why men leading the country's vaunted intelligence services dismissed warnings from units of the Israeli Defense Forces that Hamas was preparing to attack. And the reason those men dismissed the reports, it's because they were prepared by units comprised of young female soldiers. Then, speaking of women in secrets, the writer Christopher Mason has the fascinating story of a woman who is now a 100-year-old recluse, but for decades was the real estate agent to the stars here in New York City. Yet, as Mason discovered, while she was busy showing lavish apartments and hosting glamorous dinner parties, she was hiding a family secret from the blue bloods of Manhattan society. And finally, Linda Wells will be here to tell us all about the new edition of Airmail Look and take us inside the stories that will keep you looking good and feeling healthy and stimulating. Ashley, where would you like to begin? I'm tempted to start with Linda Wells because it's all about feel-good fun, but I think we should start with Israel. For sure. This is a story that blew all of us away here at Airmail and reported as well by the New York Times. It's written by Yossi Melman, who's a defense and intelligence analyst for the Israeli news organization Haaretz, and Dan Raviv, who's the retired CBS News correspondent. And the two of them are also the authors of Spies Against Armageddon and other books about Israeli intelligence. Melman is based in Tel Aviv and Raviv is based in Washington. Welcome, Dan Raviv. Thank you very much. Dan, this is a fascinating story for a lot of reasons, but first thing we should talk about is it turns out that the attacks by Hamas were not entirely unexpected. In fact, they were discussed in certain corners of the Israeli intelligence forces. What did you discover over the course of your reporting? I mean, yeah, I mean, now that it's been more than a month and a half since what was frankly the worst day ever for Israeli intelligence and for border security and for the military, which really moved so slowly on that Saturday morning, while way over a thousand Israelis were killed and more than 200 taken hostage, frankly, Israeli officials didn't want to talk about what had gone wrong. So with my partner, Yossi Melman, we've done a lot of books together, in total five, about Israeli intelligence and also Israeli-U.S. relations. And we really called our usual sources, people who are now working in the Israeli government and in intelligence and in the army, people who recently retired. It was incredible how people did not understand how it could have gone wrong like that. But it was an almost complete chorus saying, let's talk about it when the war is over. They don't know how long their war against Hamas will last, trying to eliminate Hamas and its power from the Gaza Strip. But obviously, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu doesn't want to talk about it now. He wants to focus on the war. He doesn't want to be blamed. But people at every level didn't want the questions to float around. They say they want the country to focus on winning the war. And of course, as journalists, we kept asking, and I think we're starting to find many indications that Hamas, the radical Islamic party that's been ruling in the Gaza Strip now for 16 years, was planning something big. And some Israelis whose job it is for the military and intelligence to keep an eye on Hamas and the Gaza Strip, they saw some signs They issued some warnings and the bosses just didn't pay attention. And we found that it really fit kind of a gender picture. It was women issuing the warnings and it was their bosses, overwhelmingly men, ignoring them, sometimes insulting them. A lot of these young female soldiers in the IDF are between the ages of 18 and 21, as you report. What exactly is the scope of their work and why are they well positioned to catch these warnings before others? Yeah, I mean, they have a job that some people might consider boring. Some people might even think unimportant. Since Israel got out of the Gaza Strip, that was in 2007, that that the Israeli troops left, the Jewish settlers all left. And then Israel watches the Gaza Strip 
and ended up building a high security wall and a fence, sensors and cameras. So who's going to want what the cameras are seeing? And it is a sexist system, Israel citizen army. Almost all Israelis serve in the army, but this is only changing in recent years. Men get the combat roles and women end up being the supply officers at the at the military bases, maybe starting to drive some vehicles. And then there was this special function watching the borders, watching the monitors, watching the cameras, which of course can be really boring. And also the sensor. The sensors could pick up any motion near the high security fence. On the one hand, a lot of people in military intelligence have told us women are very good at that. Watching, they don't miss a single thing, etc. But frankly, if it was a man answering, they say, well, the analysis we leave to older people. But young women, they're serving a mandatory two years in the military. Most Israeli women do. They can get out of it by saying that they are Orthodox Jews and don't believe in the army and we want to do an alternative service like working in a hospital. But most Israeli young women are going to the army for two years. And so the army, the Israel Defense Forces, the IDF obviously thinks, what are we going to do with the women? We don't in general want to put them in combat. And so they were what we call the watchers, the border watchers. We feel they were really good at it. And when it comes to this horrible security failure of October 7th that led to so many Israelis dying and now the war in Gaza, that they were doing their job. They reported seeing a lot of troubling signs that Hamas was doing weird and aggressive things near the border fence. And their bosses, overwhelmingly men, said, nah, you're wrong. It's nothing. It's just propaganda. They're just marching and shouting slogans. These young women were not taken seriously. Well, and Dan, even worse than that, as you have in your reporting, 15 of these spotters were murdered by Hamas on October 7th. Absolutely incredible. Again, I mean, the base is barely three miles from the frontier between the Gaza Strip and the state of Israel. Well, it turns out Hamas has the al-Nukhba force, Arabic word for elite. That's what they call it. Their elite force was planning this big attack and they knew exactly where they wanted to go. They went to military bases, including the base where these young women work as watchers looking at the monitor screen. And they went to the kibbutzim, right, the collective farms and other communities that Israel has just a few miles from the Gaza border. And the al-Nukhba elite forces of Hamas had killers. They murdered a lot of people. According to the Israeli count, just over 1,200. Some of them weren't even Jewish Israelis. They killed some Israeli Arabs. They killed some foreign workers, like Thai farm workers, took some of those people from Thailand hostage. And as we know, it took about 200 Israelis hostage with some releases recently that were negotiated. But this was just unprecedented. And as for the young women doing their job in the base, well, the cameras and sensors have been knocked out. The Hamas elite al-Nukhba force used generally drones. That's right, little drone aircraft that they crashed into the cameras and crashed into the special sensors on the border fence. And the Hamas fighters or terrorists got through in 30 locations and knew just where they wanted to go. And so they got to the women before the women saw them. And according to Israeli officials, not only were somewhere between 10 and 15 of the young female soldiers killed, but some of them were raped and generally raped and killed. Dan, how is this conversation playing out in Israel among young people on social media? Are they talking about this? Well, sure. Inside Israel, no doubt about it. There'll be a big call in Israel for Prime Minister Netanyahu to resign. Israel was taken by surprise in 1973, the famous Yom Kippur War. Egypt and Syria took Israel by surprise. 
And six months later, after a big investigation, Prime Minister Golda Meir and her defense minister, also legendary Moshe Dayan, had to resign. And we think that'll happen to Netanyahu. We don't know when, we don't know how it'll play out. But that means that this coming year, there could be a really big change in Israel. I, do I think there'll be a more liberal government that wants to make a deal with the Palestinians to give them their own independent state? It's hard to see that right now with Israelis angry as they are. But if they direct a lot of their anger at Prime Minister Netanyahu, you could have a more liberal government more willing to cut a deal. Well, it's a fascinating story, Dan. And thank you so much for bringing this to our attention. It's an issue in almost all countries and Israel feels itself almost always at war. And so it's coming out. Really happy it's an airmail. Thank you. David Yerman's new holiday campaign, Create Joy, Give David Yerman, celebrates life's small wonders. And when it comes to giving joy, we have a few ideas. David Yerman's collections have something for everyone, whether it's sculpted cable, petite pavé, and starburst designs for her, or pavé beads, tags, and chains, and chevron for him. There's an irresistible mix of delights for everyone on your shopping list. For inspiration, visit davidyerman.com to browse the collections and take in the new campaign, inspired by the enchantment of the holiday season. David Yerman's designs are made to celebrate moments of connection, joyful memories, and unexpected magic. Happy holidays and happy shopping. That story, Michael, it just gives me chills, like on so many different levels. Speaking of women and secrets, Christopher Mason has a terrific story this week about a woman who is a 100-year-old recluse living here in New York City. Christopher Mason is here to tell us about the life and times of Alice Mason. Christopher is the author of The Art of the Steel, Inside the Sotheby's Christie's Auction House Scandal, the TV host of Behind Mansion Walls on Investigation Discovery, and a contributor to The New York Times. Welcome, Christopher. Hello, thank you. Christopher Alice Mason is a legend in New York real estate circles and in many New York circles, not just in real estate. She just celebrated her 100th birthday, but who is she? I became aware of her in the 80s. She was this famous real estate broker who sold multi-million dollar townhouses and apartments, the biggest apartments in the city, to New York's sort of power elite. And she had these dinners every, about once a month. They were black tie. It was all celebrities. Everyone was a celebrity apart from me. And they were a lot of fun to go to and just met the most extraordinary people. She had raised more money for Jimmy Carter than any other individual. And he was frequently the guest of honor. And when he wasn't available, Henry Kissinger was usually on her right. And it was a very starry group always. So it was at one of those dinners, though, that you first heard a whisper, a secret she might have had. And tell us a little bit about what you learned and the story behind that whisper. Yeah. So one night, Dominic Dunn, the Vanity Fair columnist, whispered to me and he said, I've heard, I've heard this rumor that Alice used to give dances. You would pay her to dance and she's partly black. He didn't have anything to back it up, something he had heard. And I just dismissed it as a kind of fanciful idle gossip. After Alice closed her Madison Avenue brokerage, she decided to write her memoirs and sort of she outed herself uh, as black. She was light skinned, so nobody seemed to have figured out that she came from a black heritage. And she just decided to out herself in her memoirs, but they have never been published. Alice grew up in Philadelphia and her father was a successful African-American dentist and they had a maid and they were sort of well-to-do in sort of upscale African-American community in Philadelphia. And the family name was 
Christmas. And her father was fairly light-skinned, but definitely black. The family was known where he grew up as the family name was Christmas, and they were known as the White Christmases. And so Alice was the only member of the family who could pass for white. And her mother encouraged her to present as a white person in order to avoid all of the prejudices surrounding black people at the time. So tell us, though, then she comes to New York City and she decides to give herself a new name. And what is her thinking? How does she decide to create this new identity for herself and conceal her past? She wanted to change her name to distance herself from her parents and she had a crush on the British actor James Mason and just decided she liked the name and so adopted it. So that's how she came to be known as Alice Mason. So she was married three times. She never changed her name. So what's fascinating to me is that so then she comes to New York City in the 60s and here's this woman with concealing for painful reasons what her true identity is, her true background. And yet she becomes the person who gets people into the most coveted, snobbiest, most exclusionary apartment buildings on the upper side, no blacks, no Jews, no Irish. And yet she proceeds to be the one who can sort of get people through the gates into these apartments. How does she do this? And what was her talent for doing this? I mean, it's fascinating. And it's also, she's so impressive as a woman in business during that period in a tough city dealing with some of the toughest um, characters around. But she was very bright and she was able to figure out people's motives. She also did a lot of astrology and numerology. And if she was going into a big deal, when she would get the birthdays of everyone involved with the deal and she would do their astrological charts in order to find their weaknesses. And then she would play on those vulnerabilities to get the best chance for her clients to, to get into these very snooty buildings. Okay, do you really think the astrology was the key to it? Yes. I mean, I don't know. She credits part of her success with that. She also had this, if the planets were sufficiently aligned, she believed that she could send messages telepathically. So she would create these mantras and get everybody in her yoga class and in her office chanting these mantras. There was one couple, the Kaplans, who were trying to get into a fancy Fifth Avenue building. She had them all saying, we want the Kaplans, you want the Kaplans, you want the Kaplans. And it was a very snooty building. They'd never had any Jewish tenants before, and they got into the building. And we think that's because of the chanting, the mantraing. Who, who, who knows? Whatever She was able to use her intelligence and her wits. Who knows how she did it? But the fact is, she did in an era when no one else was making those deals. She was extraordinary. She was extraordinary. It's an extraordinary life. Fascinating. Why don't I ask you two quick things? You have a very poignant moment when you talk about she had a sister here in New York City, but talked to her, but never was seen in person with her, right? That's right. And I've seen photographs of Alice's sister who passed away, and she was unmistakably black. But you could see the strong family resemblance between Alice and her sister. The two sisters were very close, but they had a pact because it could be disastrous for Alice if her powerful friends knew that she was black. So they spoke almost every day on the phone, but they had this pact to never be seen together because someone could figure out the family resemblance and figure out that Alice was black. And the sister used to call the apartment all the time. Alice didn't tell her own daughter, Dominique, about this sister. And so if Dominique picked up the telephone, Alice's sister, Marie, would say, oh, hello, it's Mrs. Gonzalez calling for Mrs. Mason. 
So Dominique was in her 20s by the time she found out that she had an aunt living in New York City. Isn't that wild? It's wild. I mean, as Cindy Adams would say, only in New York, kids. I mean, what an incredible story and an incredible woman. Deeply impressive, I have to say. Well, Christopher, thank you so much for this great story and for your insights into this incredibly vibrant piece of New York life. Oh, you're very welcome. Thank you very much, Christopher. Thank you. Bye-bye. What an amazing story, isn't it? Yeah, amazing stories about someone who successful and yet made this decision, which is painful and sad to see it through that hindsight. But it's a riveting story that really everyone should read. And it's so cinematic. But speaking of vivid stories. Michael, can we get Peter Morgan on this? We could get Peter Morgan on this. We're solving all the problems of the world at the moment. And that's what you and Linda Wells do in this latest edition of Airmail Look. Our beauty and wellness magazine is back for its December installment. And we've got Linda here to tell us all about it. She's the editor of Airmail Look, the beauty and wellness columnist for Airmail. And she was the founding editor of Allure, a position she held for 25 years. She knows her stuff in this world and we love her for it. Welcome, Linda. Hello, Airmail, Ashley and Michael, in other words. Okay, Linda, Michael and I were talking earlier. We think this is our favorite issue of Airmail Look Ever, but is there a theme of this issue? Like, where are you taking us this holiday season? I mean, goodness knows. We have a lot of themes, but I sort of feel like our secret motto is Hype Busters, based on a new column that we have from a cosmetic chemist who debunks some myths. So I sort of feel like that has become our little motto, secret motto. But the other part of it is the pleasure seeking, which I think we could always claim. So I think we really are the pleasure seeking hype busters of the beauty and wellness world. Okay, where does that pleasure begin? Is it in the bedroom? Is it in the bathroom? Where is it? Well, it is everywhere, but we don't really limit it because we don't believe in limitations, but we do have some pleasure in the bedroom. And one of those sources of pleasure comes from the one and only Esther Perel, who is so known for her TED Talks and her books and her unbelievable podcast called Where Do I Begin? All about relationships and intimacy and power dynamics and all those things. And so she talks to us about these radical ideas about love and infidelity and marriage. And she's got a lot of opinions and she's also allows for the messiness of life and human behavior. Okay, and then we have another great essay from Julianne Smolinski, which I just love this. First of all, I love anyone who writes about sex in intimate detail, and Julianne does. What have we learned from her about the importance of keeping your sex life going after you've had kids? So Julianne Smolinski is a comedy writer, and you will know that immediately when you read her story because it's about having young children. And she decided that one of the things she would never do when she had young children was let that stop her very lively sex life. And the other thing that she would never do is co-sleep. And that is bringing children into the bedroom and into the bed often. And because those two things do not work, co-sleeping and a lively sex life. So she fails at one, but tries to succeed at the other and discovers new and interesting ways to have sex when you have children underfoot and you don't want them to see it and be traumatized for life. <laughs> we have another form of escapism, of a non-sexual nature. Lauren Bands, our editor at large on Airmail Look and a marvelous comedy and television writer in her own right, goes to the Golden Door Spa in Southern California for a little bit of me time. What does she discover there? And what is the Golden Door? Well, the Golden Door is the oldest spa in the United States that's still functioning. And it was started by this woman who's still alive and she's a hundred and something or other in a powerhouse. And it is kind of a lady spa. It's very proper and beautiful and indulgent. And various people like Elizabeth Taylor went and Oprah and all sorts of other people, Martha Stewart. Lauren goes thinking that she's going to get mud wraps and foot rubs and maybe a green juice. And she discovers something entirely unexpected, which is an immediate intimacy with the other guests 
where they start to just pour out their hearts on these hikes that they take. And then this incredible urge to cry. And it's almost like a rite of passage. You go to the spa and at some point you're going to cry. And Lauren held out for a long time. and I don't want to give away. Fair enough. Also, Linda, in your column, you tackle these devices, specifically the light emitting ones that people are wearing all over their face. And they do look kind of cool on Halloween. But what did you discover? Right. I mean, we see them all on social media and they're these LED and light and lasers that are for use at home. So they're FDA approved for safety and efficacy for use at home. But efficacy is a loose term because what do they really do? I think people do expect them to duplicate what happens in a dermatologist's office and they don't and they can't because they're not powerful enough and you don't wear them long enough. And most people who use these things aren't very diligent about their use at the beginning. Of course, we're all really good at things that require time and energy. But as time and energy goes on, you really don't want to hold a laser to your face for 15 to 20 minutes a day, every single day for three months to see any result. So sales of these devices are up 61% so far this year. So clearly they're popular, but doctors really question their merits. And I think that the great way to look at them is they're good for use in between more powerful treatments that you get at the dermatologist. But they cost a lot of money. So you have to think about that consideration. Sounds like the Peloton of skincare. Totally. I was thinking of that too, Michael. It's like you sort of feel like they would metaphorically be covered with clothes at some point and dust where you hang them. And in fact, there is a graveyard of devices under many women's sinks and they might someday join those with a Clarisonic face brush, among other things. Yeah, I got rid of mine. Thanks, Marie Kondo. But I had that too. Yeah, I did too. It's no longer with me. <laughs> Linda, another thing we're obsessed with is this notion of optimization. Like we want to live our fittest, happiest, most productive lives. And we get into this phenomenon of tracking. Now, Michael, before we delve into this, do you track your steps? Do you track your heart rate? Like how obsessive are you? The only thing I track is my steps. That's on my phone. That's it. I like to get my 10,000 a day. But other than that, I don't know this Quora stuff or all this other Aura. Big Brother surveillance state stuff. And there's people I know, I'm like, how do you, it's just one more thing that's been gamified. I don't know. So I'm here to learn. I'm here to learn from the ladies. I'm with you, Michael. And when I'm on deadline, I can sometimes reach 250 steps. It's impressive, right? Has Ashley's the expert and Ashley wrote this story because I don't wear a device either, but Ashley, you certainly do. And tell us about what you've experienced. <laughs> well, I've worn these like for a while. I write about it in the story, but when I was training for a triathlon in 2015, I bought a Fitbit because I was so abysmally slow and I thought that might help me through the training process. And it was really interesting, right? Like I'm a little bit competitive with myself. And so it was very effective in terms of improving my time. And then our friend Peter Godwin bought the Aura Ring, which I was really curious about. And he sold me on it in a conversation that we were having at a dinner party last summer, he said it really had impacted his behavior in a positive way. So I upgraded to the Aura Ring mostly because it looks better. Like the Fitbit is god awful to have on the wrist, but it's really changed my behavior in a lot of ways. Like when you can see how small things that you do end up really impacting like your heart rate and your sleep and your oxygenation levels and all this stuff in a major way, it is behavioral conditioning, but it's also one more thing to be anxious about, which is what we get into in the story. I get it. I get it. But I see people with those rings and I think they're weird occult members. I mean, guilty. Oh, not wrong. You're not wrong. Yeah, it's true. Actually, like I should have just subtitled the story, like my quest to become the most boring person at a dinner party. Because it's like, I don't get sloppy drunk. I don't eat my weight in pasta anymore. It's unfortunate. Instead, I'm super well behaved and going home at nine o'clock. So that's why I don't wear one. 
<laughs> okay, Linda, the last story, which is the one that you and I have spent the most hours talking about this month because we love it so much. Brennan Kilbane, one of our superstar writers, has a great piece about Cassandra Gray. And who is she? Well, I, we write about her as the founder of Violet Gray, which is the e-commerce beauty site that is absolutely gorgeous and kind of set a whole new bar in terms of beauty retail. But she's really, in many ways, much more fascinating than anything that she's done in this space because she, first of all, she's incredibly great looking and she has tackled this beauty world in a strong way. I think that what's interesting about Violet Gray is it created a sort of editorial look. It looks like a magazine as opposed to a retailer. It doesn't look like Sephora or Ulta or any of the others, but it really is a reflection of her taste. And it was bought by Farfetch, which is a luxury fashion retailer. And then a year later, put up for sale and Farfetch got out of beauty. So it's now in this sort of no man's land. And that brought our attention to Cassandra. She was... Married, had a lot of different jobs, met Brad Gray, the studio executive. He was the head of Paramount Pictures and became embraced Hollywood in a big way in her persona, in her work. She really kind of loved old Hollywood, as did he, and fashioned herself after that. So she had this gamine haircut. She looked very much like Audrey Hepburn. And then she started a sort of a studio where people could come in and borrow clothes and get their hair and makeup done for events. And it was all in the, in the mode of old Hollywood. And then she moved from that into just everything above the neck were Violet Gray. And she's just had a fascinating life and put herself right in the middle of it. There was one incident where she did a video with Italian Vogue that was called The Princess of Bel-Air. And I believe it was widely circulated in Hollywood and the LA Times even called it the biggest, hottest film in Hollywood at the time. And it was immediately taken down and you can't find it anywhere. But I believe she made great proclamations about style and about her inspirations. And a number of different publications followed up with her and she expressed regret about it. So she puts herself out there and it's a really interesting, she's very chameleon-like. She now has left LA and Bel Air and the Holmby Hills and the, the old Hollywood life, moved to New York, is now, Brad Gray died of cancer, and she is now with Samantha Ronson, the DJ, and they are moving, they put their apartment up for sale and are now moving to the Upper East Side, and she has a blonde bob. So you can kind of follow her chameleon-like changes through her hair color and her hair cuts too. Also, Linda, I can't believe we didn't talk about this. It's the most important piece of information. We have gifts for beauty and wellness people of all persuasions. What can we find in the Airmail Look gift guide? I like to think of it as a gift guide for beauty snobs. And I say that with all my love and respect being one. But the good thing about this gift guide is there is nothing predictable in the gift guide. We seek out the most unusual things, but they're really desirable. Linda, thank you for the great conversation and the great issue of airmail look read it all at airmail.news backslash look or catch us on instagram at ampersand airmail look thank you ashley thank you michael you are adored. thank you bye linda stay beautiful michael i feel like you are like one of our most loyal readers of airmail look and for that we thank you you mean dedicated and obsessive enthralled yeah that's me i'm gonna see you wearing an aura ring next week and i can't wait <laughs> Let's not go that far. Let's not go that far, okay? No, 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 no. Okay, well, the weekend beckons. Do you have anything you might be able to recommend? I do. And rolling off our love of the new season of The Crown, another film, another biopic, sort of. Have you seen Maestro yet, Ashley? No, I haven't. 
didn't. I know. I'm really a disappointment to you. I apologize. How is it? You're not a disappointment. It's the new Leonard Bernstein biopic starring, co-written and directed by Bradley Cooper, as well as Carey Mulligan. It's terrific. I mean, he is such a talented director of the visuals and the setting and how he puts this film together. His performance is fantastic, but really, to me, the whole film sits on the shoulders and the performance, which is unbelievable, by Carey Mulligan as Bernstein's wife. And from the moment she comes on screen to the moment she leaves, you just can't take your eyes off her. She is fantastic. And the emotional strength she brings to it and just the terrain she travels, it's fantastic. So can't recommend it enough. Beautiful to look at. And the way he put it together, it's going to be something to take a look. I think you will love it, Ashley. I can't wait to see it. Is he better in this? Okay. Would she prefer A Star is Born or Maestro? Come on. I like Star is Born just because it's the music and the whole vibe of that. That's like a great album, and this is a gigantic orchestral performance. I mean, he truly does just inhabit Bernstein. And again, it's sort of like a link back to our story about Alice Mason. It's a guy and a couple living as secrets that they are trying to contain as well. So it's got a very poignant piece of it inside of it. Fantastic. And you, my dear, what might you recommend? Tell me something. Well, on a completely different note, I've been doing a deep dive into the novels of Deborah Levy. Have you ever read any of her stuff? I have not. Please tell me. She's so wonderful. She's a British novelist and a playwright and a poet. And she sort of got her start writing for the theater. She had staged some plays for the Royal Shakespeare Company. And then she started working on fiction. And she's done just some really fantastic novels. Swimming Home was shortlisted for The Booker. I think the same was true of Hot Milk. The Man Who Saw Everything was another one of her good ones. But her memoir is so fantastic. It's called The Cost of Living. And it came out in 2018. So a few years ago, but it talks about how she sort of starts her life again at midlife and she ends up leaving her marriage and starting fresh and finding a shed in London to write in and sort of remaking her life and the challenges and victories that came with that. There have been so many books written about this kind of same thing in the same moment, but she does it in a way that is completely fresh. You feel like you've never seen anything quite like it before. I can't tell you how much I enjoyed it. And it's like the kind of thing you'll read in an afternoon because it's just so immersive. So it's called The Cost of Living by Deborah Levy, but don't end there. Make sure to hit up the novels too because they're all really wonderful. I'm going to get it this weekend. Thank you. Well, we wish you all a marvelous weekend full of lots of fun and holiday shopping. Don't forget to check out Airmail Look and our gift guides, which are rich, immersive, and full of plenty of great things to buy. I'd like to thank our sponsor, David Yerman, for making the holidays that much more beautiful. Michael, will you please read us out? Morning Meaning is produced by Airplay Productions and edited by Jesse Cannon. Our coders are Graydon Carter and Alexander Stanley. Our chief operating officer is Bill Keenan. And our deputy editors are Ashley Baker, Chris Garrett, Nathan King, Julie Vitale, and Ash Carter. Our CMO is Emily Davis, and our music supervisor is Randall Poster. The theme music is The Cute Monster by the Buddy Colette Quintet. A new edition of Airmail is published every Saturday, so please subscribe and enjoy all of our stories on airmail.news which we update every day. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at Airmail Weekly. We will be back here next Saturday with another edition of Morning Meeting. But in the meantime, be sure to subscribe at Spotify or Apple Music. And most of all, thank you again for joining us.